Trevor, thank you, and thank you for being here tonight. Let me invite you to take your Bible and join me in Romans chapter 15, a text that J.D. referred to this morning and also a text that was just on the screen. Uh, I do agree with David Platt when he says of the book of Romans, it is a missionary fundraising letter with a very long introduction. And we're going to examine tonight verses 8 through 24, a text that I have given the title, and this was my uh, assignment for this particular conference, Viewing Immigration Through the Lens of the Great Commission. And then I added the phrase, a non-negotiable mandate for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Several years ago, I was invited by the Evangelical Immigration Table if I would sign a very simple statement of conviction and concern with respect to refugees and immigration, the refugee and immigration crisis uh, in America. It's a very short statement. Listen to what uh, it said. Our national immigration laws have created a moral, economic, and political crisis in America. Initiatives to remedy, remedy this crisis have led to polarization and name-calling in which opponents have misrepresented each other's positions as open borders and amnesty on the one side versus deportations of millions on the other. This false choice, and it is a false choice, has led to an unacceptable political stalemate at the federal level at a tragic human cost. We urge our nation's leaders to work together with the American people to pass immigration reform that embodies these key principles and that will make our nation proud. As evangelical Christian leaders, we call for a bipartisan solution on immigration that, and there are six statements, one, respects the God-given dignity of every person. Two, protects the unity of the immediate family. Three, respects the rule of law. Four, guarantees secure national borders. Five, ensures fairness to taxpayers. And six, establishes a path towards legal status and or citizenship for those who qualify and who wish to become permanent residents. Then, just a little over a month ago, I was invited to sign a letter to the President of the United States asking him to vocally and publicly and clearly condemn the alt-right movement, a movement that is clearly, this is really not up for debate, clearly marked by racism, bigotry, and white nationalism. That is what it is. And then just this month, I was asked again if I would append my signature to a statement from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission concerning the dreamers. In fact, the statement reads, an evangelical leader statement of principles on the dreamers, and I'll just simply note the principles that were highlighted first. We believe it is unjust to punish children for offenses they did not commit. Two, we believe America's borders must be secure. Three, we believe we should welcome dreamers of good moral character and who are working hard to contribute to our country. 
Four, we believe dreamers deserve to be recognized as our fellow Americans. Five, we believe our government should provide a pathway to permanent legal status and or citizenship for eligible dreamers. Six, we believe a just government works to maintain the integrity of families. And then the closing paragraph, the time for doing nothing is long expired. Both political parties are guilty of failing to enforce immigration policy and perpetuating the status quo to the detriment of both U.S. citizens and undocumented immigrants. It is now incumbent upon members of both parties to set politics aside for the sake of our nation, its families, and its communities and pass legislative solution for dreamers. Again, the statement said both parties are guilty of failure. That is, I think, without any debate. The question then becomes for us, though, is the church likewise guilty for not doing what it can and what it should? Let me quickly add, I did not hesitate to append my signature to each of those uh, three statements. Uh, to me, such a minimalist statement, and they were minimalist statements. I believe a whole lot more than each of those three statements and that, or those two statements in that letter say, but I certainly don't believe less. And for me as an evangelical, Bible-believing, Great Commission-minded Christian, it was simply a no-brainer. It is not difficult for me to understand that a follower of the crucified Galilean who himself sojourned as an immigrant, as a small child in Egypt, would expect me to stand for those less fortunate, to stand for those that have been brought to our land and are crying out for love and help and assistance. How dare we think any other way than along those lines? And yet to my utter amazement, I'm often confronted by the fact that we as white evangelicals don't always stand where we should stand. And we're certainly not perceived to be the friends of the immigrant, uh, of the sojourner, of the stranger in our land. And you can make up all the excuses you want about, well, that's just their faulty perception. Number one, I'm not so sure it's their faulty perception. And number two, even if it is, that is how they feel as those who are suffering, those who are disenfranchised, those who are not like you and me in positions of power and influence. Those are simply undeniable facts, and it is time for the body of Christ to face up to it and respond accordingly, both with repentance on the one hand and Great Commission action on the other. Is there then in the Bible a blueprint that would give us direction and guidance, a strategy as to how it is that we can view immigration rightly through the lens of the Great Commission and to see it as a non-negotiable mandate for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? And I believe the answer is yes, found in Romans chapter 15, beginning with verse 8 and going through verse 24, Read with me, hear with me as I read the word of the Lord. For I tell you 
that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So you see there's a twofold purpose there in order one, to confirm the promises that he gave to the patriarchs. Number two, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now let me make a quick exegetical observation. The word Gentiles occurs repeatedly in Romans chapter 15, but each and every time the word appears in English, it is the Greek word ethne. We get our word nations from it. It is the exact same word that in Matthew chapter 28, go and make disciples of all the, not Gentiles, go and make disciples of all the nations. It is the same word. And if I were translating the Bible today in the 21st century Western context, I would not use the word Gentiles. I would use the word nations. So I'm going to read that verse again. And every time you see the word Gentiles in this passage, you'll hear me use the word nations, which is an accurate translation of the Greek word ethne. So he did this in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the nations might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And what Paul now does is he strings together four Old Testament statements that in essence give overwhelming evidence. It was always God's plan and intention to bring the nations together with the Jews to worship him. Therefore, quoting from Psalm 1849, I will praise you among the nations and sing to your name. Verse 10. And again, he said, quoting Deuteronomy 32, 43, rejoice you nations with his people. And again, quoting Psalm 117, verse one, praise the Lord, all you nations and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, quoting Isaiah 11:10, 10, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who rises to rule the nations in him will the nations hope. May then the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And I believe the hope that we abound in is the hope that the nations indeed will come to worship Christ. Now he gets very precise with the Roman church beginning in verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are number one, full of goodness, Number two, filled with all knowledge. Number three, able to instruct one another. But some translations have the word nevertheless. On some points I have written to you very boldly. How? By way of reminder. Because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the nations in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the nations may be acceptable sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the nations to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, and he quotes from the suffering servant song of Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse 12, those who have never been told of him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. 
This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Now, don't miss this phrase. And to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. I believe in these verses, we indeed find a blueprint, a scriptural strategy that can help us as God's people find our rightful place in his redemptive story at what I believe is absolutely a propitious moment in the Western world and in particular for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in North America. Five ideas clearly emerge, I believe, from this text of scripture, number one. God's promise has always been that the nations would glorify him for his mercy and find hope in Christ. Paul begins there in verse 8 by telling us that Christ became a servant, picking up on the servant of the Lord theme that dominates the latter chapters of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 42 and going through that magnificent Isaiah chapter 53. He came first, but not only, he's picking up on the same idea that he gave us in the very first chapter for the gospel comes first to the Jew and then also to the Greek. So he became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. He then tells us it is that they will sing uh, the nations to his name. Again, in verse 10, they will rejoice in his name. In verse 11, they will praise the Lord, all the nations. And in verse 12, the coming of Messiah, the root of David will cause the Gentiles to have hope. Now, what we have seen today is nothing less than what could be called the Great Commission in reverse. Dr. John Mayer, who is director of City Vision in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, said, and I quote, we now see the Great Commission in reverse in America. People are coming here from all over the world. In other words, the refugees crisis that we now have in America is indeed a Great Commission moment unlike anything our nation really has ever experienced. Do you realize today that there are nearly 60 million refugees scattered around the world? And unfortunately, for many of us, our response and reaction to this crisis both at home and abroad comes a lot more from a foundation of fear then it comes from a foundation of faith. It is informed a whole lot more by a political narrative than it is by a biblical narrative. And one of the things that I know that you have to agree with me today on is that unfortunately our churches are filled with much biblical ignorance. Our people do not think well in biblical and theological categories and they're so much more influenced by the culture and by political narratives than they are a biblical and theological narrative. And so when they see the influx of immigrants and refugees coming into America, they don't think in biblical and theological categories and say, wow, what an awesome opportunity for the spread of the gospel and the fulfilling of the Great Commission but rather they buy into a political narrative and a narrative that is grounded in fear and they say, we need to slam down the borders. Uh, we need to deport people. 
uh, we need to slow down the process. Uh, we need to be wary of these strangers, these foreigners, these people who are not like us. And yet in God's amazing providence, more people are migrating today around the world than at any other time in history. We must seize the moment because it is a missiological opportunity that will not stay open forever. And God's promise has always been that the nations would glorify him for his mercy and they would find hope in Christ. Number two, God's people must keep their focus on the most important thing, the nations, while still doing many good things. Now look at what Paul says in verse 14. I myself, he uses an intensive form there. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, because I know three things about you. Number one, you are full of goodness. Number two, you're filled with all knowledge. And number three, you're able to instruct or admonish one another. In other words, working backwards, you have the ability to correct one another uh, and to challenge and to exhort one another. Secondly, you are filled with knowledge. Now, I think he probably has in mind the knowledge of the gospel, uh, but it could extend beyond that to being a very well-informed people theologically, although we know that the church at Rome based upon the content of these 16 chapters, was having a little conflict, a little, a little strife and tension between the Jewish group within the church at Rome and the, and, the, and the Gentile church in the church at Rome. But then he also says at the beginning of that verse, though, but you are yourselves full of goodness. In other words, the church at Rome, I think Paul would say, they were doing many, many, many good things. I had the joy back in the year 2009 uh, to serve on what was known as the Great Commission Resurgence Task Force. We spent a year, a uh, large committee of about 22, spent a year studying our entities, studying our agencies, studying our churches. And you know what we discovered? We discovered in that time that Southern Baptists do good things. We do good things. Southern Baptists don't do bad things. Southern Baptists do good things. In fact, Southern Baptists do many, many, many good things. But you know what else we discovered? We have become so busy in doing many good things, we had begun to neglect the most important things. And many of us are a part of churches that are very active, very busy, doing many, many good things, but at the neglect of the most important things. And I think one of the questions we have to lead and we have to lead our people to raise and answer is, do we see reaching the nations here in America a priority? Is it something that we're going to sacrifice our monies to achieve? Are we gonna take our budget and carve out precious dollars specifically and intentionally to reach the refugee and to reach the immigrant? Or are we gonna to continue to do many, many good things, business as usual, and just leave them off to the side and never get around to getting to them? It was read this morning or this afternoon early, and again, it's a verse that I think must inform us as we think through all of this, Acts 17, 26 and 27. 
from one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. In other words, question, is it an accident that America is being flooded today with immigrants and refugees? Answer, from heaven? No, not from heaven. No, from heaven, again, it is a divine appointment and a divine opportunity that we dare not neglect. Several years ago, my uh, wife and I, mentioned a moment ago by Trevor, had the joy of going to the Sudan uh, to do mission work. We were in the southern part of South Sudan near a town called Kajikaji. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, people walked literally for a week from the Congo, uh, from Uganda, and from the Sudan to be there for a week. Uh, most all the people that came, almost 1,200, uh, slept every night outdoors on a mat under the stars and the moon. Uh, we had Bible conference. Uh, we did church planning. And while I was there, I met two wonderful, wonderful uh, Christian brothers. Uh, one, uh, his name is Edward Dima. Uh, the other we simply referred to as Pastor Sam. Pastor Sam was in the process of planning a church. And so we wanted to bless this brother. And so we shared with him as we were about to leave that uh, a number of us that had been blessed by the Lord had uh, talked and we'd taken up enough money to buy him. Now, this is what we, let me back up. First of all, when I met Pastor Sam, I met a man who owned two sets of clothing, a pair of sandals and a Bible. And that's it. Two sets of clothes pair of sandals, a Bible, that's it. But where he was going to plant the church, he was going to likewise farm. By the way, every pastor in Sudan is bivocational. And so again, when JD was talking this morning about how, and I'm not, I, I realize we have to contextualize. I understand, I do understand that. But when I hear someone saying, well, I need to raise several hundred thousand dollars, $400,000 to plant a church, I just wanna say, have you lost your ever loving mind? Their church is being planted all over the world and they don't have a dime. So don't tell me you have to have a building. You don't. Don't tell me you have to have a praise team. You don't. Don't tell me you have to have seats or pews. You don't. You don't. You don't. You don't. You just need to have people that love Christ that come together and as they gather around the word as a body of baptized believers, you've got the makings, if not the evidence of a church. So Pastor Sam, because we wanted to bless him, we took up money and we bought him two ox and a plow and some seed so he could plow the land adjacent to where his church would meet under three very beautiful mango trees. And then because of some of us have been blessed financially at this stage in our lives, we took up some additional money and we bought him his tukul, uh, which looks like a, uh, an Indian teepee. And that is the home that most of the folks in the South Sudan, who most, virtually all of them are farmers, that's what they live in. So if you had gone over to Kajikaji, Sudan about two years ago, you could have met Pastor Sam, his wife and his children, and you'd have seen his two ox, you'd have seen his plow, you'd have seen his tukul. But if you've been keeping up, you know that civil war fighting broke out again in South Sudan recently. And just uh, this week, I received a Facebook message from my friend, Edward Dima. Hello, Brother Dan. 
how are you doing? I'm visiting Baptist churches in the refugee camp in Moyo, Uganda. I responded, great hearing from you, my brother. How are you and your family? How's the work going? I do pray for you regularly. His response, we are fine by the grace of God. My family and the entire population in Kajikaji fled South Sudan in February 2017. We are now refugees again. We lost everything. But thanks be to God. We are now recovering and we have started planting Baptist churches. We have over 100 Baptist churches in the refugee camp in North Uganda. Thanks for praying me for me. Thanks for praying for the ministry in South Sudan. Uh, I will share with the brothers your message. And then he sends me some pictures of what they're doing, shows me a lot of pictures of churches that they're building, but none of them have roofs yet. And then at the end of the email, he sends me a picture of a man named Julius, uh, who pastors a Baptist church uh, in Kajikaji. And he shares, he fled to Uganda refugee camp and went back again to Kajikaji to minister to a few church members back in January of this year. Unfortunately, he met two armed men with a gun. He was shot by bullets twice and he fell down bleeding. The two armed men robbed his motorcycle and his money and telephone and they fled. Fortunately, some volunteers later got Julius unconscious and took him to Moyo Hospital in Uganda. He stayed on a hospital bed for four months, but now has been discharged. He is now recovering has moved back into the refugee camp in Moyo. He just started a new church in the refugee camp. And you see, I, I, I cannot help but weep over that. And at the same time, I cannot help but rejoice over that. Because as he has shared with me on other correspondence, Brother Danny, we are able now to share the gospel with people heretofore we could not get to. And we are now having the opportunity to share the gospel with people who heretofore have never heard a clear presentation of the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, my dear brothers and sisters, it is fine for us to be doing good things, but dear Lord, help us not to get our eyes off on doing the very most important things. Number three, God's purpose is that we would boast in Christ and what he does and what he does in us and through us to bring the nations to him. God's purpose is that we would boast in Christ and what he does in and through us to bring the nations to him. David Platt has well said, and I quote, in his goodness, our God turns even the tragedy of forced migration into the triumph of future salvation. John Piper says we will be worshiping and praising God for eternity, but we have only a limited time upon this earth to engage in missions to, so that the nations would rejoice and so that the nations would sing for joy. And so in verse 17, Paul talks about where he will boast, but he will boast very specifically and very precisely. He says, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Now, really, you know, I believe all of the Bible is infallible and inerrant. And so I believe exactly verse 17 was what the Holy Spirit moved Paul to write. And yet you can almost feel Paul's humanness in that statement and he catches himself. He catches himself. In other words, he says, I can be proud of my work for God. Whoa, 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 wait a minute though. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So I want to make that clear. 
can boast in what I'm doing for Christ, but let me just remind you, any good I do, it is Christ who is doing it in and through me with what in that he might bring the Gentiles, that is the nations, to obedience and that he might do so by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit of God so that I have fulfilled the ministry, the end of verse 19, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ and so now it is my ambition to preach the gospel but to do so not where Christ has already been named, lest I would build then on someone else's foundation. Now, I want to make a very specific application. Stay with me now. I I know what the text says, but I want to make a very specific application that I think would naturally derive out of this text. To boast in Christ has multiple applications. And to boast in Christ, at least in part, in our context of our discussion tonight, I think would mean I will not be one who badmouths immigrants and refugees. Let me apply James 3, 9, where the Bible says we bless God on the one hand and curse men made in his image on the other. He then simply says, this should not be. Why? Because in essence, when you curse man who is made in God's image, you're cursing God. And so I believe one application of what it means to boast in Christ is to make sure we speak well, we speak appropriately, we speak in a God-honoring way about those who are different than us, the immigrant, the refugee, the sojourner, the foreigner, and we will not badmouth them. I love what Ed Stetzer said. There's no place for the dehumanization or the degradation of immigrants. Irresponsible comments that broadly paint immigrants as terrorists, rapists, and murderers only breed anger at and fear of people who are simply trying either to escape persecution or trying to make a better life for their family. Missiologists know that one of the great opportunities, a true Kairos moment for evangelistic success always takes place in waves of immigration. They know that receptivity to the gospel always increases, that the glorious beauty of Christ and his gospel is always magnified. In other words, hear me well, migration disrupts lives, but at the same time, it opens hearts. Yes, it disrupts lives. We see it every day. But in the process of disrupting those lives, it opens people's hearts. So when those times come, you and I can truly boast in Christ as we become his hands to those people, as we become his feet to those people, as we become his mouth to those people, loving them and serving them in his name. Number four. God's passion is that we get the gospel to those who have never heard wherever they are. Getting the gospel to those who have never heard wherever they are. Paul tells us in verse 20, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. Then Paul says very personally in verse 22, this is the reason, Romans, 
why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I, and this is an amazing statement, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Now, what is Paul's argument here? Paul's argument is this, at least now there's a gospel witness in these places where I have been. However, there are places today there where there is no gospel witness. And in particular, in his context, he's talking about the country of Spain. And so Paul says, I have made it my ambition to get the gospel to those who have yet to hear. I have made it my ambition to get the gospel to those places where the name of Christ has not been named. Now listen to this. Lifeway Research tells us that most Protestant churches in the USA are not involved in assisting local immigrants at all on any level. Most Protestant churches in the U.S. are not involved in assisting local immigrants at all on any level. It gets worse. Listen to this. 60% of all immigrants in America say they do not know personally a single Christian. 60% of all immigrants in America say, not that they've never been to a church, they do not even know personally a Christian. And yet here's the amazing thing, brothers and sisters, they now actually have, perhaps for the first time in their lives, access to the gospel, a gospel previously they had no access to. And yet, again, it was said on the video a moment ago, see my notes, I'm grateful, I, I praise God that we have spent billions and billions and billions of dollars to get the gospel overseas to the unreached and underserved around the world. And it is my prayer that we'll continue to spend hundreds of millions every year to keep on doing that. So we'll do that, but we won't walk across the street or down to another neighborhood where it costs us next to nothing to share the gospel with unreached people. And you see... Several years ago, when we began to emphasize here at Southeastern that we would be a, a great commission seminary and allow that to permeate everything that we do and guide and direct everything that we did, uh, I got some pushback from some, from some people. And uh, often it was pushback from parents whose children came to Southeastern, got bit by the missionary bug, which is a good bug to get bit by, by the way, and inform their parents, I'm not coming back to, to Alabama or Georgia or Florida or Mississippi or North Carolina or whatever to, to serve at a church just, you know, a few miles away. But I believe God's called me to take the gospel to those who have never heard. And amazingly, their parents, rather than rejoicing and applauding, would send them on horrible guilt, guilt trips. And they would say things like this, well, sweetheart, there are lost people here in Alabama. You don't have to go clear around the world to find lost people. And of course, there are lost people in Alabama. Heck, a lot of lost people in Alabama, especially those football people. But anyway, there are lost people everywhere. The issue is not lostness. Listen to me. The issue has never been lostness. The issue is access to the gospel. And where there are people who have no access to the gospel, Paul says that deserves our attention. That deserves our energy. That deserves our priority and so again in God's amazing grace and it is an act of grace he has brought the unreached right here to our backyard and to our front doorstep so the issue then becomes what are we 
going to do? And again, <clears throat> I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm as deep south as you can possibly be. I know how resistant we are to change, and I know how culturally blind we are. But folks, that's no excuse for doing the right thing. It's just no excuse. And I just have to say to you as I have to say to myself, you and I have to be willing to get uncomfortable. You and I have to have the courage in a loving way to make our people uncomfortable. But folks, I'll just tell you this. <clears throat> Life is too short. It's just too short for me to be a part of a church that's going to do nothing to reach the nations with the gospel when they're right here at our doorstep. I'm not going to be a part of such a church. It will either change or I'll move on. It will either change or I will move on because I am not going to beat my head against a concrete wall to the day that I die when I could be a part of another fellowship that would be far more interested, aggressive, and active in actually fulfilling the Great Commission as it was given by our Lord. You need to remind your people there are no segregated subdivisions in heaven. And there are no segregated churches in heaven either. We all have the same Father. We all worship the same Lord, and we are all indwelt by the same Holy Spirit of God. And so we rejoice in what God is doing in bringing the immigrant and the foreigner and the sojourner to our doorstep, which leads me to my fifth observation. God's people must be a missionary force with each one doing their part where they are to see the mission completed. We must be a missionary force with each one doing their part where they are to see the mission completed. Do you see what he said again in verse 24? <clears throat> I hope to see you in passing. I don't intend to stay in Rome. As I go to Spain, and here's the key phrase for our purposes tonight, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a little while. So as I close, I want to raise a question and then provide five simple responses. The question, is our church and are our people doing their part to get the gospel to those who do not know Christ who are right here in our own nation? Is our church and are our people doing their part to get the gospel to those who do not know Christ who are right here in our nation? To use Paul's phrase, how are our people helping to reach those who've never heard. So let me just throw out five ideas as I close. One, are you and your people regularly and specifically praying for immigrants in America? Number two, are we sacrificing financially to help care for and evangelize the immigrant in America? Three, are we asking God to call out persons, call out our best to go to the immigrants that are here in America? Four, are we equipping and training our congregations to effectively engage the immigrants God has brought to America and elsewhere, but particularly America? And then number five, and I won't chase this too far because it gets too, um, too muddy and too dirty, but I'll say something about it. Are we seeking to influence our politicians to act compassionately and justly toward the foreigners, the refugees, the immigrants, the sojourners, and the strangers among us. And I'll just say this, you can't do that effectively if you sell your soul to a particular political party. I don't care if it's on the left or the right. 
If you can sell your soul and you do sell your soul to them, then you can't speak prophetically to them. You give them a pass when they sin. You turn the other way when they do something that you know is wrong. And I guarantee you, folks, heaven does not smile on that. I'll just be bluntly honest with you. I'm extremely ashamed of some so-called evangelicals today. I am extremely ashamed. The blind eye they turn to evil and wickedness and wrong is breathtaking to me. And it's not surprising that very few of those have the immigrant and the refugee and the sojourner and the stranger on their heart. So there is a political component to all this that I don't think we can neglect. We don't get bogged down with it, but we recognize that one of our callings in living out, it's not the gospel, but in living out the gospel is that we seek to promote justice, that which is right, and to be compassionate. Since when was it wrong for our nation to be compassionate? Maybe the nation won't be, but the church must be. David Platt is right. Much of our response to the refugee crisis seems to flow from a view of the world that is far more American than biblical, far more concerned with the preservation of our country than the accomplishment of the Great Commission. But pastor and missionary strategist Oswald Sanders was right. There is no conceivable situation in which it is not safe to trust our God. And our God has told us to go and make disciples of all the nations. If he told us to go, we can indeed rest in the fact that it is safe for us to trust him as we go. So it's time for us to think right about immigration on this issue. And I believe the time has never been more right for us to act biblically on this issue as well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have today to minister to those in America and around the world who have never yet heard the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, or if they've heard his name, they've never heard a clear and accurate presentation of the gospel. And Lord, in my lifetime, I would have never imagined such an opportunity as we have today with so many nations right here in our own country, more than 40 million right here today uh, within a walking distance or a short drive. And Lord, they're lonely. Lord, they are confused. Lord, they are hurting. And Lord, they long for someone simply to reach out and love them. And Lord, you have called us to love them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, the fact of the matter is, when we love people well, we open the door to speak well to them. And so Lord, may we indeed recognize that loving them and telling them will go hand in hand. And may we recognize, Lord, it's not gonna be easy. It's not gonna be comfortable. They're different than we are. It's not that we're right and we're wrong. they're wrong. We're just different. We're just different. But Lord, help us to recognize that um, we were very different from you in our sin. And yet you crossed the greatest barrier of all to reach down and save us. And if our great God would do that for us, we certainly can do it for others. So Lord, may we indeed respond with great commission eyes, great commission ears, great commission mouths, but most of all, a great commission heart to the immigrant 
and to the refugee that you brought to America, may they indeed see the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is glad they are here and we want them to be a part of the family that we are a part of now and for all of eternity. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.